Well, welcome everybody to the LSE, those who you, many of you will know it already, but for those of you who don't, welcome in particular. Uh, this is, I'm Howard Lannister, and I'm uh, Emeritus Professor of uh, Social Policy here. We were talking, what did, what did Emeritus Professor meant? Well, it's mainly out to grass, but, uh, has, <laughs> but doing pleasant uh, introductions like this as well. Uh, Now, this lecture is uh, the last but one in the series LSE Works, in which we present to the wider public the work that's going on in departments and research centres. And uh, there will be uh, the last one on uh, May the 20th, when Dr. Perna Sen will be giving a lecture on Above the Parapet, Women in Public Life, uh, and that's at the Walsham Theatre over in the, National, in the um, NAB building across Lincoln's Inn. Uh, and for those of you who want to Twitter, the uh, hashtag is LSE Works. And uh, at the end of uh, the proceedings, we will, of course, take questions, and this book will be on sale, which the authors will be talking about, and we'll return to that uh, in a moment or two. Now, the, uh, the lecturers today um, are talking about their book. Robert Casson, uh, in his working life, was one of our most distinguished uh, development economists. Uh, and then he retired, and as retirement means at the LSE, you then go on to do some, something else. And he decided that he was going to focus on education and schools. And he collected together a team of younger people uh, who know this field extremely well. And uh, he's pursuing a strategy that's only well known to me, that when you think you might need a bit of help, get the best people going. And uh, so uh, we will have today uh, the, the... the authors, uh, first of all, uh, Anna, I think, uh, Anna Vignoles, uh, who is Professor of Education at uh, Cambridge and was a student here and has been around this place. Um, and then Sandra McNally, who has uh, Professor of Economics at Surrey, but has just begun a, launched a new research centre uh, on vocational education. She will, t- she will get there. She will tell you the proper title, but that, that's essentially what it is. And then uh, responding to their presentation of the book, uh, we have Professor Steve Strand from Oxford. And so I think without further ado, I will ask, I think it is Anna to begin presenting the findings of their research. Thank you very much, Howard, for some very kind words there, and we are delighted to be um, talking about our book today. As is the case with all books, you sort of finish writing a number of years ago and then think, gosh, I wish I'd added that and I wish I'd added this. So it's, uh, it's one of those long, long projects that uh, when you actually get to see it in print is, is really rather a delight. So we started this endeavour with the intention of trying to um, say something useful about what we could do in the field of education 
to make a difference, to make a difference to children's lives. But we started, I think, with a particular focus. If you wrote about education, you could write reams and reams and reams of, of text on all manner of aspects of education. But we were actually particularly focused on a problem that we see as um, not unique to the United Kingdom, but a problem that is quite a major issue in this country, and that is the inequalities that we see in education achievement. Um, I put some, some facts up there for you to, to contemplate. Most of them are quite uncomfortable. Children who are on welfare, who are eligible for free school meals in this country, are about half as likely to get a good set of GCSEs uh, as compared to children who, who are not on welfare. Um, the other important um, feature of the data, if you like, that informed our thinking on this book was that we knew when we started that those disadvantaged children start falling behind extremely early, uh, that the gap opens up between the rich and the poor child even before they start school. Um, and uh, are, the UK is blessed with some wonderful data sets that could tell us that the cognitive gaps that uh, you see between disadvantaged and better off children uh, are observable as, as, as early as three years of age and certainly quite large gaps in their vocabulary by the time you get to age five. This is not simply a problem of um, inequalities across social groups and socioeconomic groups. It's also affecting different children in different ways. Uh, another feature of the data that informed our thinking on the book was this idea that if you look at um, children who have very high achievement early on, relatively speaking, they seem to be uh, bright, for want of a better word, um, they come from disadvantaged backgrounds. They, they soon, um, by the time they get to 16, look like they're faring a lot worse um, than their more advantaged counterparts. Most of that happens in primary school. So we were concerned not just about the inequalities, but also uh, what it meant for, for bright children from disadvantaged backgrounds in the system and whether there was opportunities for them to succeed. The school system, I think we have to be really careful about this, and we're going to talk about this when we discuss the individual chapters. The school system is, of course, not responsible for some of, these, some of the gap, um, but it doesn't narrow the gap. So the socioeconomic gap in education achievement widens through primary um, and then a little bit further by the age 16. Um, does that mean that schools in some way are sort of culpable? Well, it depends how you look at that problem, and that was one of the issues we wanted to address in the book, whether or not it's actually possible for schools to counter some of the impact that's coming from uh, their environment, children's environment, children's homes, and try and narrow that socioeconomic gap. Why do we think it's possible? Well, many countries seem to be doing it better than we do. So we have pretty large socioeconomic gaps in education achievement in this country compared to other countries, giving us hope, of course, that were we to do some things differently, we could make a difference to children's lives and narrow those socioeconomic gaps. So before I talk about the individual chapters, I think it's worth thinking about what we count as evidence so we should declare an interest here. We are all three of us economists uh, and various distances from economics. So I've now moved to an education faculty, so I can call myself professor of education, but my roots are in economics. Uh, Sandra is very firmly still an economist, and Robert has now moved uh, into social policy. So, but we do come from this particular disciplinary tradition, and in that discipline there are um, different kind of grades of evidence that we would count as, as being robust. 
Um, it doesn't mean to say that other types of evidence can't tell you lots of important things, but if in this book we were particularly interested in trying to focus on causal relationships, being quite confident that when we say, yes, this might make a difference, that we were looking at evidence that establishes causal relationships. Now, having said all that, we drew the line at saying we're only going to look at random control trial evidence, because that was one approach we could have taken. Um, the reason why we didn't do that is the book would have been even thinner because there's not that much uh, evidence yet on uh, the basis of random, randomized control trials in education. So where we've done is that we've done a compromise. We've, we've focused on largely quantitative evidence, causal wherever possible, uh, giving caveats where we think we're looking at an association rather than necessarily a causal impact. Um, but inevitably that in, in involves a degree of, of judgment on our part. So omissions are our responsibility. Uh, big gaps certainly remain in terms of the, um, well, two, two ways of looking at that. Big gaps remain in the sense there were areas that we couldn't look at because there wasn't really enough robust evidence to say something sensible. Um, but there's also gaps in what we tried to cover. We did not try to cover everything, as you'll see in a moment. And then finally, um, the purpose of this book was to inform our thinking, or your thinking, and uh, policymakers' thinking, um, about what might work um, to make a difference to children's lives, and in particular narrow those socioeconomic gaps. Um, but of course, the evidence is only one part of that story, and uh, evidence-based policymaking doesn't mean slavishly adopting policies that we recommend in the book. It means that using the evidence that we're presenting here today to inform your thinking about developing effective policy, and then obviously evaluating the impact of that policy. And we hope that's the way that the evidence in the book will be used. So what are we actually talking about? Uh, we provide a, a selective history to get us all going on the uh, UK education system, and particularly English education system. Um, it has an interesting history, and some of that history, for example, on the role of grammar schools and a few other features, are, is really important to our understanding of the current system, so we have a chapter on that. And then... Reflecting our interest in these early years, we also have chapters on early years in parenting because we think that that's really crucial to understanding how we could make a, a real difference to these children's lives. Our chapter on schools is important because it reflects the fact that much of government policy uh, is actually focused on schools rather than other aspects of the education system. Um, and what makes a good teacher is the chapter which perhaps is at the heart of the book because in our conclusions we are stressing the importance of teachers and teaching, um, and so that's a very important chapter. We do cover some curriculum areas, uh, reading, numeracy, uh, and some ICT, and the provision for special, children with special educational needs, um, but this is not a book about the minutiae of GCSE curricula. This is about uh, um, trying to understand the origins of the disadvantage experienced by poor children, and for us to shed some light on that. And we end with a, a hugely important topic that I've actually spelt wrong on the slide, vocational education, um, of which um, the evidence is quite sparse, and so it's a great uh, uh, success that Sandra is going to run a research centre on vocational education because it's an area that needs it. So what do we actually find in the book? We're all going to talk about our various chapters because we all wrote different parts of this book, um, and I wrote the, the chapters on early years and parenting. Um, most of you will know already that early years are critical. There's very robust evidence that not just that socioeconomic gaps 
in education achievement open up early, but also that um, interventions and uh, additional resource and indeed high quality preschool provision can make a difference to children's achievement uh, and some evidence that it can narrow the gap between richer and poorer students. But I think one of the features of our book is to also ask what lies behind that piece of evidence. Why is it that uh, the early years are so important? And of course this comes down to opening the discussion up about parenting. Um, most of the, um, the difference that you see between children happens when they are in the home environment and preschool, so they're arriving at school with big differences in their, say, their, their level of cognition. Um, and that's something that uh, we need to talk more about. Uh, we need to invest more um, in terms of helping parents to help their children. But we also need to be quite clear, I think, from the evidence on what would constitute good parenting and how can we, we bring that about. Um, and, of course, this is highly controversial, intervening in, in families and what have you. Um, in terms of what works for parenting, um, there are some obvious messages from the book about, you know, it's certainly true that more educated parents and, indeed, parents who have higher levels of, of basic skills um, uh, have children who go on and do better in the education system, that high aspirations are important, uh, that in the earliest years particularly, but even moving into uh, secondary, that warm but authoritative parenting is likely to be more effective. So the book spells out some of those lessons for, for any parent, um, but I think it also um, gives some insight into what we should be doing from a policy perspective um, and in particular, we present evidence that very intensive investment programs in young children are effective or have been effective. Some programs have been affected. And by intensive and targeted, I mean either early years provision or parenting programs. The key there is intensive and the key word is targeted. So in other words, we need to think very carefully about are we spreading ourselves too thin if we uh, offer free nursery care of average quality to all the children in England? Would it be better to spend our resource more selectively with targeted interventions that are a little bit more intense for poor children? So these are some of the questions raised by the book. Uh, certainly quality of provision in the early years is absolutely critical, um, and that's not measured by staff uh, child ratios, that's a major issue um, and we need to in the book we spell out in a little bit more detail about the need to, to really um, invest in high quality early years and parenting programs and then finally the, the message from those two chapters is the debate has been a bit polarised in the past with people talking about you need early intervention and that's where it's all at whereas actually what our book is suggesting is that um, the early intervention is key but if it's not followed up by subsequent investment in the child uh, it won't have the impact that you hope it will and eventually children will revert back to having large socioeconomic gaps. So those are the key messages from that chapter and I'm now going to hand to Robert. Oh sorry, Sandra. Right. Well, um, my chapter, two chapters, one is about schools and the other is about numeracy. So, I mean, the first question is, do schools matter relative to other things? And of course they do, but not as much as, as families matter. And that's a sort of something that we're inclined to forget, as though 
the school system's responsible for everything, the bad that's going on, and if only we changed one thing, it would, it would make a huge difference. And one of the findings of the chapter is that really there is no magic bullet that will sort everything out. Um, but there are things that you can do, and the sort of three areas that are the focus of the chapter is the difference that resources might make, um, the importance of choice, competition and autonomy, and finally, school types. So I'll just say a few words about key issues on each of those things. Um, so does more make money make a difference? You would think that it should, but when you look at data and you look at it in a very simple way, you sometimes find a negative correlation between school spending and, and attainment. And this is largely because of how schools use money or how money gets allocated to schools. It tends to get go disproportionately to disadvantaged um, areas. And, and it's difficult to account for that fully in an empirical uh, study. So that's why many, that's probably the main reason. If you look at things in a very naive way, you see a negative correlation. Now, in recent years, data has got better and better, and methodology has got better as well to look at this. So if you look at studies in the last 10 years, you find that most studies find a positive effect of expenditure on, on achievement, additional expenditure on achievement. But the magnitude really varies widely. Um, so there's some controversy about that. To what extent is more money the answer relative to other things? And probably uh, people would say, well, it depends on, on how you spend the money. Um, one finding that comes from the literature is that it is more important for disadvantaged children than others. So that's pretty good for policies like the pupil premium that are explicitly focused on disadvantaged children because not only is that um, equitable, but it's also efficient because that's where you get the biggest bang for your buck. Um, the second issue on choice competition and accountability, the theory is that um, with league tables and offset reports, schools should be more accountable and transparent and that parents will have that information and have um, the ability to make a choice that's right for their child. And because money follows the student in large part, uh, schools will compete with each other and the effect of all of that is that performance should improve. Um, well, that's the theory. Um, now, looking at choice, choice certainly... This evidence, what limited evidence there is, suggests that choice does indeed improve uh, parents' ability to make uh, the right choice for their child, um, the sorts of information that is provided, um, and that in turn improves performance. The thing is, choice is not free. You have to be, if you're living in England like many other countries, the schools that are popular tend to get oversubscribed and if you want to get into one you've got to live near a good school and that gets capitalised into house prices. So that means that children from disadvantaged backgrounds are sort of last in the queue for the really popular schools. So it can be, uh, choice may sound a very good thing but it can also increase inequality which is not good. Um, on accountability, Ofsted tends to get a hard time but when you look at the evidence, Ofsted inspections do seem to improve um, performance, and it isn't all because um, uh, schools are concentrating on, on students near the margin. There does seem to be genuine improvement in schools. Um, and league tables seem to be a good thing in terms of in increasing transparency. Uh, the negative thing, of course, is that with accountability is that schools can become very focused on just trying to improve the, their performance on the actual measure um, rather than trying to just improve 
uh, a performance across the board. So the chapter raises issues, discusses all the literature, that all the findings about accountability and some of the perverse, perverse incentives that can, can come about because of it. Um, although it's something we need, we really need accountability in a system like ours, um, it does need to be looked at and reviewed about how, how you um, exercise that accountability and what measures you use. Um, on competition, there isn't a huge amount of evidence for the UK, but um, uh, it, it suggests, uh, and for the US, that there's, lots of, there's lots of evidence for the US, and the results of those studies are pretty mixed about the effects of competition. Now, one of the interesting issues for the future is that we have now a lot of schools becoming autonomous because of the academy's policy, there's a potential for a, a lot more competition in the system, and it will be interesting in the future to look at whether that has an impact on performance. Um, and just, there's an awful lot in this chapter. Um, academies, of course, is something everybody wants to know about. Um, unfortunately, we can't say much about all the schools that are academies now. We went from 200 schools in about 2,000 or so in the, under new labour that became academies. There was essentially a policy to turn around disadvantaged schools. There's now 4,000 academies, and it's no longer a policy deliberately aimed at disadvantaged schools. In fact, it's really the opposite. It's when schools become quite good that they can become academies. Um, and the, So you can't necessarily extrapolate from the findings on the early 200 academies to the academy's program as it is today. What we do know from the academy's program that it was, it was useful, it was good, it did, it did have a positive impact. Um, not huge, but, but reasonable positive impact on, on achievement. Um, but whether or not that's going to be true of the academy's policy as is now is an open question and, and we, we can't do that. And we do point to various risks about the academy's program in the chapter as well. Um, on grammar schools, I'll just say one more thing about grammar schools. How am I doing for time? Grammar schools. Uh, the issue about grammar schools is that people tend to ask, and you know, is it, is it good for my child to get into a grammar school? Um, how important is going to grammar school? And the, and the answer is, if you're in a selective system, um, it's, it's definitely good for your child to go to grammar school. It does have some positive impact on achievement. That's what the research seems to say, although it's difficult to find very many good research studies on this. There's a lot of problems with trying to estimate this in practice. But that isn't, doesn't mean that a selective system is a good system. And in fact, uh, what we know from all the Scandinavian countries, well, the best evidence on this comes from Scandinavia, but a lot of countries went from a selective system like we did back in before the Second World War and became more comprehensive over time. And the, the good evidence on the effects of that comes from Scandinavia. And it shows that average performance improved when, when systems became more comprehensive. And average performance. And then it was particularly good for, for disadvantaged students. So I think there is evidence to support the system that we have, which is a more comprehensive system, rather than trying to go back to an earlier time. Um, but the issues get very conflated because it's, people think, is it going to, good, going to grammar school good? And it's, a, it's really a different issue if you're talking about what's the right system. Um, so I'll just, I won't say so much about my numeracy chapter. Um, it's, it is a shorter chapter. Um, Numeracy skills are really quite a big problem. For about one-fifth of young people, uh, 
So 20% of the, pop, of, the of the young people have low-level numeracy skills, and this has been a long-standing problem that's actually got worse over time. Um, at the same time, there are large returns to numeracy skills in the labour market, both at the lower end and the upper end of the distribution. Um, so numeracy is something that is really important that we try and address. Now, how do, you, how do you address it? Well, some of the um, ways to try to improve numeracy skills are, are true of other areas of the curriculum as well. So covered things like by the, the chapter on teachers, and um, that's also referenced in this chapter too, that if you want to improve numeracy skills, that the type the teachers are really very important. Um, there isn't an awful lot of evidence on particular teaching strategies on numeracy that we could find in the UK. There has been a good review of studies that mainly covers US studies. It has a quality threshold and they reviewed 189 studies. And um, there, the evidence that was looked at by, by the, the uh, group in York um, find that um, it's teaching strategies that tend to matter rather than the curriculum, which is quite interesting given the debate in this country. But there isn't an awful lot of evidence on what works for improving math specifically in this country. So this is something uh, definitely an interesting area for, for future research. Um, and although even there, there, are some, there are some studies here about what, what works, uh, teaching strategies, but... We really need long-term studies, not just studies that have maybe excellently designed, but the study effectively stops immediately after the intervention is finished. You really want to know whether things have an impact um, on longer-term outcomes. Um, so that's what I'd say. Can I just say before Robert starts that um, all of this is going to be on a podcast, we hope. Uh, the technology will work, as it usually does, um, and therefore the slides you can get back to on, on the website. Well, I'm going to say a bit about reading. It doesn't sound too bad if you hear that 90% of children are achieving the target level in reading by age 11, but actually what that means is that more than 60,000 children are leaving primary school without being able to read properly, and that works out at about 18 children for every secondary school. <clears throat> While research shows that with the best teaching and individual support where it's needing, needed, poor readers can be brought down to around 1% or 1.5%, not 10% where we are now. So what are the things that help? Well, struggling readers often need individual support. <clears throat> uh, there are several programs for this. One of the best and best evaluated is Reading Recovery. Um, it works, uh, but its ring fence funding was cut uh, a few years ago. It's expensive, but it's worth it. There's a really high cost of not learning to read. It's a high cost imposed on secondary schools because, as I already mentioned, there's a high cost in terms of the outcomes for children. They're not predicted to do well at GCSE if they haven't learned to read properly by age 11. And there's a high social cost because of the later life experiences of people who don't achieve good qualifications in school. <clears throat> Another version of individual support 
Uh, it's a program that was actually started by the Evening Standard called Get London Reading. They use the Beanstalk charity to send volunteers into schools to do one-on-one -on -one reading support. Uh, it hasn't been evaluated positively. But you have to ask, why on earth was it left to the Evening Standard? Why wasn't the government doing it years ago? It's a, it's a real puzzle to me. Um, <clears throat> there is some helpful technology, uh, assistive technologies for children with learning disabilities uh, and several other programs. <clears throat> I actually wrote the chapter on educational technology, and I won't go into that here, except to say that its main virtue is that it helps teachers to know what the individual child um, <clears throat> is faced with and has issues with, and it gives the teacher more time to treat those issues uh, individually with the children. It's very dependent on, on the teacher. Um, phonics, I think I'm going to skip phonics. It's a, not a very edifying story, especially in relation to the evidence. Uh, but it, it is really important. I'd be happy to talk about it if anybody wants to. So I just end this bit by saying we really need to improve reading if we want to narrow the social gap. We know how to do it, but we're not doing it. So I'll come on to teaching. The research suggests that the, after early years, the most mileage for improving outcomes is in improving teaching. It isn't bad at present. Ofsted has judged a majority of teachers to be outstanding or good, but obviously we could be doing better. There's a large minority who are not so good, large numbers leaving the teaching profession, shortages of teachers for specific subjects and so forth. So we need to look at initial teacher training. Um, <clears throat> we don't actually know which is the best way. The university-based route to a postgraduate certificate in education or the school direct route, which is based more heavily in schools. But the school direct route was launched by the present or just departing government without any evidence. Uh, it's not reaching the numbers it's uh, intended to reach, while the university path uh, is almost fully subscribed. Uh, another thing that we could do would be to expand Teach First, which seems to be doing well. Um, this is a program which takes really uh, high-level graduates, gives them training, and puts them into disadvantaged schools. And it seems to be effective, but it's very small. The plan to enlarge it only to 2,000 by this year, and possibly it would be a good idea to expand it much more. But altogether, there are only 35,000 or so new teachers every year, and the whole teaching force is over 400,000. So if you're talking about improving teaching, improving the initial teacher training is the slow way. You've also got to do something about improving the existing force. And the main instrument for doing that is CPD, or Continuing Professional Development. There's quite good research about that. Um, the key seems to be to transmit skills within schools to teachers who need improvement with outside help with 
necessary actual practice in CPD is very variable and, and very dependent on school leadership. Um, Performance-related pain, there's some evidence that it's effective modestly, but it's actually difficult for schools to measure performance. That's another thing that the chapter on teaching goes into at some length, and I'd be happy to talk about it, but it's, it is actually quite difficult. More generally, obviously it would be good if we improved the pay and conditions for teachers to make the profession more attractive, and there are a number of proposals about how to do that in a targeted way. But really we need to value the teaching profession much more than we do. So um, before we we conclude, I'm going to talk a little bit about the vocational chapter. Um, The vocational education system in in the UK is sometimes called the Cinderella of the system because although it caters potentially for 50-60% of uh, young people as they pass through the system, i.e. the proportion not going on to higher education, in fact it's a term that's used to describe a very, very wide range of provision and vocational education in its truest sense only makes up uh, a proportion of lots of the other activities that are going on in further education which are largely geared at trying to improve the skills of half the population that don't go on to university. And I describe it in that way very particularly because one of the features of our system is uh, it's quite a kind of uh, a negative way of looking at um, non-university provision. It's always described in relation to Uh, the half of the population that go on to university now. And so that's one of the challenges we have, and we've been talking about the need for parity between vocational and academic education for, as far as I can see in the literature, about 50 years. Um, And we still have this this problem that vocational education is is not seen as high status, um, and this has some consequences. Employers do like vocational education when it's done right, Um, There's lots of evidence that bits of vocational education are highly valued in the labour market. Employers also really value basic skills, which comes back to what Sandra and indeed Robert were saying about numeracy and reading. Employers value those basic skills highly. They pay for them. Um, But the problem is, how do we go about upskilling the 50% who leave school, don't go on to university, and more importantly, the bottom fifth who have real skill problems? So what does the evidence say? It says that early specialisation is not necessarily... Sorry, I got cold today. Early specialisation is not supported by the evidence. By that I mean early um, divisions into vocational academic, say at the age of 14, is not necessarily a good system. Countries that do that tend not to have good outcomes. (coughs) The evidence base also doesn't really tell us what to do about the proportion of kids who are leaving uh, the school system with very low levels of basic skill. So if there's one bit of the evidence that we need to fill with this new vocational education uh, research centre, it's to understand what to do about that bottom fifth. 
right? Because high-level vocational education can be successful. We have good examples of it. We should do more of it. We should get more high-level apprenticeships. We should have high engagement from employers. We kind of know all that. What we're not so clear about is what we do with those who have already passed through the entire education system, many, many years of schooling, many thousands of pounds of investment, and they've left the school system with very low levels of basic skill. That is obviously the problem in the system when it comes to thinking about inequalities, but it's a pretty intractable one. Um, In all honesty, the chapter does not at this stage give many answers as to what you do about that bottom group. So if we take the book as a whole, what do we think that it might be telling us about education policy? So we think education policy would look different if it was informed by the evidence that's presented in the book. Um, We've already talked about the early years, um, and indeed this government, uh, coalition government and the previous government, have invested more in early years provision, less so in parenting. Um, and less so in terms of targeted interventions. So that's, I think, where it really should go. (coughs) I think there should be less emphasis on schools and structures. We've talked about that. It doesn't make as much difference as you think. And more emphasis on teachers and teaching. But one of the issues that we came across is just how thin the evidence base is on particular initiatives And yet there are numerous initiatives in the system. And one recommendation we have is to think more carefully about introducing interventions that you're not then going to evaluate. Because that's teacher time, and we don't know what their impact is. They're certainly incurring a cost. And then finally, we would say that following the advice in in the book, or at least targeted suggestions as to what we might do better, we could redirect educational spending to improve not only pupil achievement, but (coughs) narrow the socioeconomic gap and make a a difference overall to the lives of children at the poorest end of the the, uh, social spectrum. So thank you, and sorry about the coughing. (laughs) Well, well, thank you for the the authors. Um, Now we're going to ask for a comment on it and to get the discussion going, and we hope that you'll all join in. Do you want to thank you? Yeah, thanks to, to Robert and Anna and Sandra for giving me the opportunity to, to make comments. Um, Robert very kindly said I didn't have to read all the book, especially since I haven't actually received my copy of it. I was working from the proofs. Um, so what I did was I read the first two chapters and I selected three other chapters to look at. So I looked at the chapter on parenting, I looked at the chapter on schools, school quality, resourcing and effectiveness, and the chapter on specialty educational needs. So I think with... Um, with the first introductory chapters, is able to get an idea of what the objectives and what the shape of the book was, and then how well that was carried out in the three chapters on parenting, schooling, and SEN that I read. And the objective is, is quite clear and an important one, which is to create accessible reviews of quality research to inform key areas of education policy. And I think you've been very effective in doing that. I think there are really important reasons why we need to do that. I think about both push factors and pull factors. Um, And the push factor, I think, is that policymakers do want better guidance um, from us as a research community um, on what the key lessons are to learn from the research and how they can be related to policy. So I had the, the, the privilege last year to act as a specialist advisor to the House of Commons Education Select Committee in its inquiry into the educational achievement of white working class young people. 
And actually, I was, I was, it was the first kind of real view into the parliamentary system I've had, actually. But I was impressed by the genuine desire on, on, on members on that committee from all, from all sides of the House to generally know what um, the research was telling them and what they could do to make a difference. There definitely is a, a pull factor from, from policymakers do want the sorts of concise quality reviews that this, this book is, um, is, is providing. And the, the push factor, I suppose, is through exercises like the Research Excellence Framework, the REF, we're being, um, as, as researchers, more and more encouraged to think about the impact of our research. Actually, how do we make sure that our research has impact, that it influences policy and makes differences? Um, I did say to Robert, actually, the scheduling, scheduling tonight's uh, session before the big event tomorrow probably does almost guarantee a lack of impact in terms of coverage. I'm sure this isn't what's going to be filling the newspapers um, tomorrow as we uh, hopefully find out uh, the results of the, the election for the next five years. But clearly there's a push factor as well. So I think that this is, this is timely, this book. Um, I think it's, it's a demanding task, um, but it actually addresses it very, very well. So rather than actually kind of deconstruct this through the, the particular chapters I read and the, you know, the wide range of coverage that you've seen there, I thought I would just pick out a theme that, that emerged. And, and for me, an important one was the, the balance between the influence of the school and the influence of the, the family or the home or the wider community in terms of young people's education achievement and particularly in terms of social class gaps. And I think that, you know, that balance comes across very clearly from, from what's written here. That, that um, you know, if, it's only, if we look at the between-school variance, the differences between schools um, as a proportion of the, of the total pupil variance, we're saying school effects around about 10%, at the most 20% of the variance in young people's outcomes. So clearly, although schools are important and they make a difference, most, you know, maximum sort of, you know, talking about 20% of the variance, 80% of the variance is from other facts, you know, outside of school. And that, that's very clear here, and that's important, because one of the things I noticed in, in, in working on that House of Commons Education Stuck Committee was politicians very much want to make a difference, want to do something, um, and what they can do very easily is pull the levers on school policy. So no matter how much the evidence was presented to them, um, they kept coming back to, well, this is all about quality. And if we actually raise the performance of the poorest schools, the weaker schools, to be as good as the best schools, you know, we'll, we'll massively um, reduce socioeconomic uh, gaps and we'll make a huge difference in that way. And that, you know, is a laudable thing, and schools can make a difference. But actually this, this focus on schools as the only element um, is, is a quite a dangerous one. And I think there's a natural um, tendency, if you are a policymaker in the area of education, to think about, and the Roberts mentioned this, so to think about schools as the only way you can drive or change things. And sometimes that narrowing of focus has its, heart, its own dangers. So one of my views, uh, reflecting on the last five years, is that actually we seem to have uh, an emphasis on schools as the, almost the only thing that policy uh, needs to, to direct, uh, be directed to if it wants to change uh, things like the social economic status, the SES gap. Um, you know, you'd think it was all about schools. And when we see things like removal of contextual value added or, or, or attempts to take account of factors which we know about students and schools' compositions which have impacts and move to a system of floor targets 
where all we say is if your performance is below a certain floor, we'll close you and we'll turn you into an academy and that'll make it all better. You know, the sort of naivety of the policy formulation around schools is really quite staggering. Um, so there certainly is a lot that needs to be done to ram home the message that we have to think much more widely than just about school policy um, if, we want to, if we want to make a difference to things like the socioeconomic status gap. And that kind of emphasis came through in the parents' chapter as well, and in the SEN chapter, I thought, was, was, was important. But again, we don't only need to think about the impact of the school, we need to think about uh, the impact of the home and the, wider, and the wider community. The only thing I would say, I suppose, in terms of uh, small little um, areas which I found sort of slightly niggled me, because you have to give a balanced review here, don't you? One was, as you said the economics literature. I felt that there was... I wondered how widely you thought about the education literature, because, I mean, a lot of... There was a lot of um, good quality uh, research, I think, from the education journals, which I didn't see um, picked up so much. So I think there was a strong emphasis on economics. I mean, I did the usual academics test, where I picked the book up and uh, flipped through to the references and see if my name was mentioned very much. And if it, if it was, then that's great. And if it wasn't, obviously, the literature review was totally inadequate. Now, we all do it. Can we all do it? Um, now, I, just thought, I thought maybe, maybe the book would be strengthened if it was clearer what the criteria for selection of evidence were in the way that a systematic review would do that. Um, so that there, were, there, were, there were key reasons maybe to think more widely than the economics literature. Um, and the only other thing was I thought maybe uh, it's important to do this, but the only other thing was I felt you were almost too positive, um, overly optimistic maybe about, about the future in terms of um, policy on school autonomy, uh, in terms of changes to the SEN system. Um, I think I have a slightly bleaker outlook on the, on the potential uh, of changes in the system. And to be fair, Sandra, you know, to pick up... What concerns me a lot is the, is the removal, really, of the influence of the local authority um, in, a, in a system based on total school autonomy. And Sandra did pick up some of the, the problems with that, but I think they really are quite substantial. Um, I don't think that you can plan... Well, one of the things we know that happened is that the planning of school places are one of the most basic functions uh, of a government ha- has, has, is being carried out with very poor um, rigour um, because of things like free schools opening without any um, regard to the, the, the capacity of the school places in the local authority, things like exclusions from school, which concerns me, um, those kind of areas, without any kind of strategic um, input from the local authority, it's very difficult uh, for those things to be done, uh, those tasks to be completed accurately. Um, I'm also aware that actually you cannot replace local authority um, democratic accountability with chains of academies who may actually have no geographical location within an area but may be multinational chains. And I, again, I don't think this is, this is a healthy system in terms of um, local planning and provision or indeed democratic accountability. Um, yeah, local authorities, in my view, have been maintained almost as a whipping boy, so we still have a level of a government which can be blamed um, in terms of, you know, okay, this isn't our problem, central government, this is a problem. Um, for local government, but actually they no longer have any of the resources or the ability to do anything about it. So they're a useful working boy, um, but they no longer have any power, and I think that's quite problematic. And I think having eight regional schools commissioners is, is you know, not going to replace uh, the important role there. So, uh, we'll, yeah, we'll have to wait and see uh, what happens tomorrow in terms of what governments uh, or 
what combination of parties might be forming the next government. But uh, well, I, I personally hope that we'll see uh, local authorities not so much a part of the problem as a part of the solution. Um, but the kinds of research reviews that uh, are contained in each of the chapters of this book I think are, are very powerful, very strong ways of speaking um, to policymakers, and I think it's important that we, that we do more of this kind of activity as a community in order to get the messages and the key facts out there. And with that, I'll, I'll hand back. Thank you very much. Well, I'm sure people have got thoughts about or questions to ask of the uh, people who've been speaking, both criticising and uh, presenting their research. So uh, what I think I'd like to do is to ask people to, in in groups, um, begin on any one of the Topics that have been presented to you, and if then it appears that you know a theme is beginning to emerge, I might prod people to ask questions about. Are there any more questions about that particular theme? But uh, I'm in your hands now. Um, so if we've got we've got people who oh, do want to ask questions, and there'll be a mic coming round. So these two mics and. First one there, and then there, and then the one over there. So we'll take them in three. So one, two, three. Yep. Hi, um, my name's Katie. I was Could you just say where you're from? Are you a yeah, student? Yeah, sure. Or I'm, um, I'm the performance and impact manager at Future Leaders, which is an education charity. Um, so I'm going to ask about measurement. One of the challenges often with the large-scale kind of economic studies is just what you can measure at that scale and what data is available, both in terms of how you measure disadvantage, so the use of free school meals, and also the outcome measures that you have, so kind of headline performance measures. Um, I was wondering to what extent you felt constrained by that or felt it may have been an issue for you and what you would have liked to be able to measure that maybe wasn't available in large scale. All right, thanks. So question about measurement uh, there. You can decide between you who's going to... Do you want us to take them as they come? Um, no, I think we'll take three together and then you can follow on. Yep. Uh, the second one was here. Yep. Hi, um, my name's Emily. I work for Teach First, the education charity that was mentioned. Um, and I think you're completely right to stress the importance of Uh, making the teaching profession valued in society. I think that has a big role to play. Um, My question was about vocational training and what policy recommendations you'd make to address the lack of parity between that and the higher education route. Okay, one clearly about vocational education. And the third one was over there. Yeah. So I am a teacher in St. Patrick. Could you just speak up a bit? Right, my question would be... about the, the, the students, the children, which are attending schools. The question was very good there, if it's the right system for these children. The question to ask if my child can go to that school is very easily can be answered. If the child is passing the test, the selective test, yes, is the right school for that child. But this child who is passing this test and these children are the bright of the brightest, the cream of the cream. These children are academic and IQ well above average. The question is, really, is the right system for these 
cream of the cream, or you will do something with these children. Because based on my research, these grammar schools are not doing anything with these children. These children are not going to take part in any Olympics, in none of the subjects, academic subjects. And all these children still are tuition, they have tuition from home, and really that league table, for my opinion, is not that transparent when the league table and the results are reflecting parents' achievement okay. as well. Okay, I think you've got the question. Um, now, who's... So shall I start on measurement? Although yeah, the, the one on measurement. Steve may want to comment yeah. on this. Um, so, I mean, I think there are two answers to your question. It was your question, wasn't it? I mean, first of all, um, we restricted our review to evidence that we thought got as close to causal as we could, reflecting our disciplinary bias, as Steve had said, so uh, simple correlations were not particularly valued and we wanted causality and that leads to you know, a particular selection of literature. And also you're having to work with the data that you have. So I think one part of the question is, you know, is education for uh, a range of outcomes and did we just narrow or focus on studies that looked at a narrow range of outcomes from education to which the answer is definitely yes. That's what the data is and, and you know, that will have limited the scope of what we were able to look at. But your second bit of question is sort of you know, what data would we have liked to have had to ask better questions um, the uh, administrative data that we have in this country is, is extremely good by world standards. Uh, it has problems. It's not perfect. The measures of socioeconomic background are uh, limited. Uh, I would love to have parental education level. If I had to have one thing, it would be parental education level in the, um, in the administrative data. But having said that, what we have is adequate to be clear about the magnitude of those socioeconomic gaps and also where we managed to close them as a result of intervention. So I think it's good enough if, in answer to your question. I don't know if you want to add anything, Steve. Yeah. Well, okay, but the next question was vocational. Yeah. Um, Sandra, do you want to lead off on that? And then um, yes, I mean, maybe others have other things to say. I, Anna wrote the vocational chapter rather than, than me. Um, I mean, I do, I do have views about this. I, I don't really think that it's the right issue to say there should be parity between vocational and non-vocational education. I think the real issue is there's a lot of heterogeneity, both in vocational and in academic, uh, academic education. And whereas you sort of know in academic education what are the really good routes, it's less obvious sometimes in vocational education. So I think we need good information about what is the right what are the really good routes in vocational education and, um, and how do you make that information and careers avail information available to young people so that they can choose the best thing uh, for them and that's one of the issues in the research that we're going to look at then there's a whole, the whole issue that Anna was talking about about all those people who don't really get into recognised good vocational routes um, what is there for them and um, that's just an incredibly difficult uh, question that we're going to have to look at. But whatever they're getting certainly doesn't have any parity with um, good academic uh, uh, education. So, and that's a huge, huge issue. There's a big hole there for all those people who don't go on paths that lead to university. Um, yeah, can I just add something? I mean, on, on that, um, we, we lost opportunities on... Um 
basic skills particularly. So we had a large investment uh, about a decade ago in uh, individuals' basic skills. There was a, a concerted effort to try and upskill uh, the bottom of the uh, skills distribution, um, but we didn't really evaluate what we did. So we had a lot of programming, a program called Skills for Life, but there was remarkably little um, evaluation that would have passed our quality uh, criteria, um, and I think that was a huge lost opportunity because we still don't know how, for example, you manage to upskill adults who've managed to leave the school system with poor basic skills, and we want to improve what they what they know in terms of basic skills. We don't, really don't know how to do that yet because we didn't evaluate what we were doing properly. Um, and I think this is the one of the pleas in the book is to, if you're going to introduce policy, really try and get those evaluations done properly um, because only then will we know whether or not that money was well spent. Yeah, absolutely agree. Grammar school. The third question about the third question was about grammar schools. I don't know who wants to. I mean, in other words, the, the question, as I understand it, is um, it, it may appear good to the people who've got through the equivalent of 11 plus, but is it really that good? Um, yes, I, I mean, it is a really difficult issue because the people who get into grammar schools, of course, are the really brightest people within their area. The whole thing is designed to be like that, and. What, what, what you can do is what you can do as a, as a research as in a sort of economic framework, which is what I know about, is you, you can look at people on the margin, people who marginally got into the grammar school compared to those who marginally didn't get in, and you can you can um, if you have information on the uh, 11 plus, and there was one study that did this back in the 1970s. They looked at, he looked at a particular area, had information on detailed scores of children, so he was able to look at people who just got into the grammar school relative to those who just missed out. And he found um, Damon Clark, this is, that um, that exam test results didn't improve dramatically but it did influence the sort of subject that you were doing um, the sort of routes that you went in going to, to grammar school. Now, But your question was about the very bright people in grammar school and that's something that's very hard to address because we don't know what the counterfactual is for those children. How they would have been had they not gone to the grammar school, because in those areas we don't observe that, and that I don't know. So I don't know if grammar schools are stretching their brightest students. Um, that is not something that um, I don't think I can do in the sorts of framework that I look at, although it may be that using other types of research or qualitative research, you might have get a better sense of that. Steve, do you have any response to this? Um, I I would reflect, I agree very much with what Sandra has said, that for a child on the cusp, their their, um, scores will be raised by attending a grammar school. It's very good if you can get in. But for a child with the same score at 11 who goes to secondary modern, their scores will be depressed relative to going to a comprehensive school. So the, the the net picture for the system... Uh, is one uh, a best of um, of a zero sum game, but probably actually net um, uh, negative. I mean, I can reflect on this through through two sources, really. I suppose one one if we look at the free school meal gap, and we look how large that is in the two authorities that still maintain fully selective systems, their free school meal gap is substantially larger than the gap um, in in the comprehensive authorities. 
Um, and that shows you that although there may be this boost for that proportion of young people that go to grammar schools, there's a, at least as big a disadvantage, if not bigger, for those who, who are told at 11 that actually they aren't academically good enough uh, amongst the 30% um, that will go on to grammar schools. So that is a problem. And I, I guess I also have a bit of a personal reflection. I live in an area which still has a rump selection system in South Warwickshire. There are just three grammar schools covering a 75 mile radius um, area. Um, so they take about 3% of the local kids and I have one child who's got in and I have one child who hasn't. So I've been able to see at first hand the effects on young people's self-esteem um, and their own sort of valuing of themselves if they're successful or unsuccessful in that exam and it's incredibly divisive and very difficult to persuade um, the child who hasn't been successful, that actually they can be successful at school, that it is still worth trying, that they shouldn't write themselves off, that they aren't the dumb one. Um, and I think that's the real problem with grammar schools. It's not that the grammar schools aren't good for the kids that, achieve, uh, that attend them, but actually that secondary moderns are, are not good for the kids that go there. Right, well, we'll take some more questions. I must say, but memory of work that I did 40 years ago for the Public Schools Commission on the direct grant school. The thing that struck me there then was the proportion of people who were going to schools like Manchester Grammar in the top 1%, and something like 30% of them were leaving uh, at 16. And one might have wondered whether or not the, you know, something was happening within these schools. They were in the bottom stream. If you're in the bottom stream of 1%, you might think you're no good and leave, but um, overall, you would have expected the top 1% to be good. So, uh, look, look again at the, the work that was done for the Public Schools Commission 40 years ago. It raised some real questions for me about whether or not all of those kids were really well served by being as, quite as selectively chosen as that. There's some work by Herb Marsh as well, many, many years of work on, by him yep. suggesting precisely that, that actually being the bottom end of a, a school um, is much more likely to damage your self-esteem than being the top end of um, a secondary yep. model. So for those who didn't get in, the good news is that your self-esteem over time tends to be better. Yeah. Well, anyway, I shouldn't go into my own work of 40 years ago, should I? Um, um, so it's an academic self-concept, not the, achievement. Um... <laughs> <laughs> uh, Yes. One, two, three. Okay. Hello. Uh, very interesting, thanks. I'm school governor in Bucks, which is one of those areas with the big gap. But my question is a bit broader. Are we, are we in the right landscape? We're looking now at global, globalisation, global data that can be measured. And I think the new measurement at secondary level post five A stars to C, including English and maths, the best eight, will have a link to the PISA measure, which is global. So are we looking at this in perhaps a too narrow context? We've got performance-related pay, pupil premium, which, if you're saying, aren't properly evaluated yet. If they haven't done it based on the evidence, who came up with the idea and why is it being implemented? In the US, the latest data, which is the biggest data set, is pointing to removing the bottom 5% performing teachers, which they can do from the data, or they can analyse from the data, and that's having uh, a completely different effect. 
on schools. Are we not in danger in the UK of ending up with a two-tiered system of underperforming schools becoming mini-welfare states and the better-performing schools just going right away? Yes. Where was the second one? I've lost. Um, yes, there. Yeah, I can't see you because of the... Hello, I'm Michael Slavinsky. I work at Researchers in Schools, yep. uh, which is a teacher training route for people with a PhD that want to become secondary school teachers, and at the Brilliant Club as well, which is a widening uh, participation charity. When you looked at a CPD, what were the best examples that you found, and what were the things that jumped out at you and said, you know what, if all schools did this it would make teaching better overnight, which things had the highest leverage. Yep. Yes. Thank you. I'm Richard Warren. I'm a teacher in a secondary school. I wonder if you could just tell me what you think sustained investment in parenting might look like, given its crucial importance to the overall strategy you were mentioning. Thank you. Performance-related pay. Performance-related pay. Could you say something else? Well, I think you're right. The, e- the evidence is very modest about its effects. They're small. Um, there was a, it actually happened here some years ago, um, and it was measured and it had a small impact as evidence in the United States also a small impact so it's not a very effective way to improve teaching I, I would say um, <clears throat> that's an entirely different question from the one about paying conditions for the teaching profession generally and I think there's a lot more to be said about that there's a huge amount of stress uh, and overwork amongst teachers which, which could be reduced and it has an impact on the quality of their teaching. I was in, in a school the other day and I spoke to one and I asked her just specifically about burdens. She said yes they're huge and it limits the time I can put into classroom preparation um, lesson preparation and I think many teachers will recognise that. And then there are big variations in the quality of teaching. I, mean, I didn't cite them, but I gave this overall figure for Ofsted. But actually, the quality of teaching in London, about 70% Ofsted judges to be high quality. In the northeast, it's less than 30%. So there's huge variations in the quality of teaching. And you're not going to fix that by this modest effect of incentives, the performance-related pay, certainly. What you've got to do, and I'll come on to your question, is much more in the way of uh, CPD. Um, The things that really seem to work are the good teachers in the school teaming up with the less good teachers. I said it's difficult to measure teacher performance, and it really is, and there are three different ways to do it, and you probably need to do all of them to get a good line on how good a teacher is. But I think typically... Head teachers do know who the bad teachers are. Uh, there are various ways in which they will know this. And, that, and the teachers who need support uh, to do better. Um, <clears throat> so a lot of it has to do with school leadership, on which there's also very large literature. 
Um, so there is a great deal to be done in this very fragmentary system. People pursue CPD in very different ways in different parts of the country, some strongly related to university education departments, some of them not, um, some of them within groups of schools, some of them not. You asked for one really outstanding thing, and I would say, yes, there was one. I went to talk to one of the leading researchers on CPD in the country, Sir Bub Institute of Education, and as I was leaving, she handed me a piece of paper. It was a little thing, and it was called How to Make Every Lesson Outstanding. Now, I thought it was absolutely terrific, and if I was in charge, I would make sure every teacher got hold of it. It described an English lesson as given by a poor teacher and a brilliant teacher. And I wish I'd had it. Even when I was teaching graduate development economics to clever graduates, I'd have done a better job if I had read that pamphlet. And if you read this book, you'll get a reference and you can access the thing itself. It's really terrific. Um, <clears throat> so there's lots of stuff out there. That, that's my feeling. Whatever you look at in our education system, there's a range of performance between really good and really not so good. There's a very large amount of information about what is available to make it better. And the real question is, how are we going to get the two together, all this, all this information about how to make things work better with the bits of the system that need improvement? So um, my question was about parenting and what sustained investment means. So we have early years programs such as um, Sure Start that recognize that youngsters, you know, young children have come from disadvantaged families, their parents need extra support. That tends to more or less fade away by the time they get to primary school. Um, it's not that schools aren't trying to interact with parents, because I know they do at, at an individual level, but in terms of system solutions, we tend to think of parenting as something that we intervene in in the very earliest of years. Um, there's some uh, evidence from uh, one or two trials, one in France, that where you get um, parents more involved in the lives of their children in school, that this can have as a positive impact on their achievement. And the, the trial I was thinking about, for example, was very, very um, simple, uh, very light in the sense of it didn't cost a lot. The parents were uh, called in at the beginning of the year, and the head teacher spelt out to them what was expected of their child and what was expected of the parent. But it was a quite uh, an interventionist sort of approach. Your child will do homework. Your child should be in bed by you know whatever time. Um, it had a positive, uh, at least in that trial, it had a positive impact on achievement. So I think we need to be trialling things in primary and secondary school that get parents more involved in their child's education. But as any teacher will know who works in, in very deprived areas, that's actually quite challenging to do. And I think we have a window of opportunity when kids go to school in primary to, if you like, educate the parents about their role supporting their child. And then, of course, you will have a, a, a small fraction of children for whom there is no parental support. And I'm not just talking about looked-after children. There is a, a group of children who will clearly lack parental support. And I think there's a different type of program for them, which is essentially you're trying to do in loco parentis. You are trying to substitute for the care that they're not able to get at home. Um, now, the evidence on that is a bit mixed, but there are some programs in the U.S. where the schools come very close to pretty much taking away most of the parenting 
tasks that a parent would do. The children get picked up very early, they get their homework done at school, etc., they get fed. Um, so for a small fraction of children, that might be the types of solutions that we would come to. But that's not a solution for the vast majority of the system. Don't th- it does still means we can do more, I think, just in primaries and secondaries involving parents. So school-led initiatives, yeah. Uh, yes, but of course I hesitate to anything to, to say that without additional resource. So this is not again. This is one of those ones that's not cost free. My reading of the evidence is uh, they've trialled something. It's very low cost. It seemed to have a positive impact. If I was a school leader, I might think about doing that in my school and trying to judge, stroke, evaluate, stroke, measure whether it appears to make any difference. Um, and I'm suggesting that it's most likely to make a difference if you get them early. By the time you have, uh, you know, a stroppy 15-year-old and the parents, you know, finding it very difficult, it's probably a little bit late to then start involving them in their <laughs> kids' education. So starting early, and um, I think we could do with a, a trial. And it's probably worth mentioning at this point the Education Endowment Foundation, which has been doing a lot of work trying to trial various interventions to reduce the socioeconomic gap in pupils' achievement. Uh, they've got a website, and they, they're all runners, if not random control trials, randomised control trials, pretty good um, evidence base. Um, and I know that they are thinking more along the lines of testing some parental interventions, and I believe they have one already. Well, that's those three. Now, um, one. You've had one. Two. Three. Um, thank you. I don't know if you can hear me. Um, thank you very much um, for the talk. It was really interesting. Um, my name is Caroline Creeby. I'm an assistant head teacher. Um, I'm interested in your views on um, current moves to support teachers and schools to be more evidence-informed and the extent to which that might have an impact on teachers, their practice, and outcomes potentially. Uh, yep. Down here. Hi, um, I'm Shiko. I'm from Kenya, but I'm with a group from the U.S. Um, so did you find that children uh, with more invested parents for, but from poor economic statuses fed better than children from a higher socioeconomic status but with less invested parents? Um, my name's Elizabeth Monk. I wondered to what extent you believe... Um, that these gaps in achievement can be narrowed in the context of one of the most unequal European societies and the successful, those societies which have proven to be extremely successful in raising achievement across the board for young people tend to be societies in which there is very much less Uh, social inequality than we show here in Britain, which has got worse, which may be the context in which um, some of the achievement levels um, diminishing uh, have to be set. Yeah, I think I'll ask Steve certainly to lead off on that last one when we get to it. First two questions. Um, One of them was for me, I think, about whether teachers would benefit or whether teachers should be more evidence-informed. Well, that is the argument about these different routes into education. And, of course, university people like us feel 
but the university-based route in which teachers are more exposed to research evidence uh, is going to be better than the route which gives them less of such exposure. And there is actually a report which is cited in the book about the importance of teachers uh, imbibing research. So I would uh, say that you really ought to read that. It's not absolutely clear that you tell teachers what the evidence is and it's going to turn them into wonderful teachers if they're not Um, but there is a lot of discussion of this and certainly the virtues of the university based course are apparent I ought to say, I mean if you're thinking about evidence the school direct route was launched without evidence in fact it was quite ideological and when he announced it, I did, this is not in the book, Mr. Gove said, university education departments are full of Marxists. <laughs> this is news to most university education departments, I think. So it was, there was quite an ideological element in this, trying to move initial teacher training away from the university route. Uh, and there was no evidence behind it at all. And as I say, we still don't have the evidence in terms of ability to say, yes, on this route, the teachers will get better outcomes for their pupils. We don't know the answer to that question. But uh, there's quite a lot of thought about it. And and, uh, if you ask a university person, you're not going to hear him say, well, it doesn't really matter whether people hear the evidence or not. Okay, shall I? Yep. So um, you're asking about parents and whether, essentially whether or not, um, say, income trumps aspiration, trumps um, education level. So uh, parental education level is the best predictor, um, which perhaps is unsurprising because I've also done work myself looking at the intergenerational, intergenerational relationship between mother and father skills and child skills. So parents do have this role to impart not only real skill but also aspirations and attitudes towards education um, and so that is absolutely key and it is more important in, in statistical terms than income um, so does that make you feel better or does it make you feel worse parental education is, is something that's hard to fix uh, and it's crucially important um, simply raising aspirations will not do it so, for example, in uh, uh, the Millennium Cohort Study, which is a, a birth cohort that was born in the Millennium, uh, uh, they're asking parents about their aspirations for their children. If you ask them early enough, the vast majority, 90-some percent, want and aspire for their children to go to university. By the time you get to 16, reality is hit, and that's not happening. So aspirations in and of themselves are not enough. They have to be backed up by other things. And you know, next time we're thinking about the investments we want to make, say, in adult education, we might want to reflect on the fact that parental education is quite important, and anything we can do to, to make the next generation of parents more educated is a good thing. And I'm sure you'll comment on the inequality issue, but I think that's actually inextricably linked to the question about the massive gulf in experience of the poor and the rich child in this country compared to others. But I don't know if you want to make some comments on that. What if I take that, that question about an unequal society? I mean, I think, I think the I haven't read that chapter in the book, but I think the summary that, that you gave, 
you know, indicate the Scandinavian countries, Finland, Sweden, the, the, the societies that are more equal have smaller socioeconomic gaps in terms of educational achievement and yeah, other measures um, as a result of the education system through, through employment and, and higher education and, and, and so on. So undoubtedly you have to look at the wider context to pick out schools as one um, area of policy and suggest that actually in the way that happens at the moment that really if there is a problem it's the school's problem um, and if um, there is a large gap then you, know, you have to basically do something with the school um, tends to operationalise it as, as, as a school divorced from that wider context and I think that's problematic having said that I think you have to be um, as positive as you can and I think there are a number of um, factors about the pupil premium policy which do lead to some optimism for the future um, I think it is encouraging that we have a broadly reduced redistributive system of funding. If you go to the United States, most school funding is raised through local taxation. So if you live in a poor area, you generate lower revenues for schooling in those areas. Because we have a centrally funded system um, and we redistribute, like with the people premium, you know, we are putting more resources into those schools with the most disadvantaged catchments. And that's about the only way you're going to make a difference to that. Whether um, there's been some sleight of hand and smoke and mirrors, the money you've been given through the pupil premium has disappeared out the back door of other elements of your budget, so um, maybe you don't necessarily have as much new money as, as, um, as, as sometimes we're given to think schools have, um, is an interesting question. Whether you're going to be able to cover all the uh, grounds on disadvantaged pupils and special educational needs um, and, and every other kind of uh, thing which the pupil premium is notionally there for, because it's not just there for the kids on preschool meals, it's there for you as a school to address kind of all the wider needs. You know, there may be a lot of pull on that money, you may have lost money from other sources, but I think that the underlying principle means I'm more optimistic about the ability to do something um, than, than I think I have been since I entered education 30 odd years ago. So, you know, it's too early to, to say, as the book um, says, about what the outcomes of that policy are going to be, but I think, you know, it's the best, it's the best hope that we've got. And it will be made or broken by the success of the schools in terms of their own activity. Can I just, just add one point to that? I mean, you can't disagree with what Steve has said, that overcoming the inequalities in our society is a very slow process for a very large number of reasons. But at the same time, best practice can really achieve good results. And I'd like to read you something which is quoted in the chapter on reading, that Ofsted looked at a number of outstanding primary schools with a range of uh, social and economic backgrounds. And this, uh, let me quote, they were teaching virtually every child to read, regardless of the social and economic circumstances of their neighborhoods, the ethnicity of their pupils, the language spoken at home, and most special educational needs or disabilities. So it can be done if you do the best things. And I think it very much depends on also what you're aiming for. There's a, a rather interesting curve called the Gatsby Curve, created by Mars Quark, that looks at the correlation between income inequality, you know, how unequal we are as a society, and social mobility, your chances of success coming from a poor background, if you like. And, of course, in the most unequal societies, it's also true that you have the lowest chance of succeeding educationally and economically. These two things 
are correlated, there's no doubt about that. But that doesn't mean to say that we can't ensure that, as Robert rightly points out, that it's 98%, 99% of our children learn to read before they leave primary school. So we have to be careful what we're actually trying to, to achieve there. Do I, get a, do I get a comeback on Robert's comment? <laughs> I don't want to turn this into a personal conversation between us. Um, but I think you can't base policy on exceptionality. We know that, I mean, I've seen these when I worked in local authorities, some exceptional schools that achieve amazing results against the odds. But you can't build an education system based upon exceptionality because what works in one school will not necessarily work in another school in a different context with a different, uh, you know, a different workforce, with a different area, with different students. And so the fact that one school can do it doesn't mean that all schools can do it um, on necessarily to the same extent. So I'm wary of the exception being used as the, uh, as the stick to beat everyone with. I mean, we know that charter schools have done very well, but the huge amount of resource in some of those charter schools, some have done very badly, you know, means that it's not, it's not replicable practice that can be brought up to scale for the whole of the education system. There's going to be a spread of quality right throughout the system, but all we can do is to try and drive it up. Well, I think probably that's rather a good uh, point uh, of discussion to stop on. Well, there's one, one more. Is that okay? One. Well, yeah, okay. We'll go. We'll one, two, three. Okay, and then we then we must stop. Yes, one over, gentleman there. And then you. Faisadam uh, from Lambert. Um, I do think. What is actually really needed is very resource. Uh, a lot of things can be done, particularly raising achievement of disadvantaged children. Um, you did raise, I think, some question about whether money is really everything in terms of raising achievement, I think, in your presentation. Um, did you actually look at the way this money is really used? Uh, are you, have you looked at in context of raising achievement and also in context of what schools are mainly using for supporting emotional and social issues really at school level? That's why really money is really very essential in terms of raising achievement. Um, really important, I think we need to get right this argument because it has been really used as a way of really cutting the budget of school. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, uh, and that evidence are really there in terms of really supporting the school. Can you just really clarify whether you have really looked at in terms of emotional and social issues? Okay. Um, my name is Carolyn Conway. I work for a charity called Child to Child on a project called Hearing All Voices in Schools. And I'd be interested to know to what extent you consulted children when looking at education, how education policy might look different. Um, did you consult children and did, did young people have a voice okay, in your good. research? I'm just conscious of the time. That's why I'm moving on. Uh, I'm on there. Yep. Okay, thank you. My name is Arafaine. I'm from St. Patrick's College. My question is the modern privatization of schools, especially so-called academy. 
If you see uh, the equipment or the learning resource materials in the primary or secondary school, which are in under the local authority, it's very poor. Even they don't have basic materials, even the sport or other activities. Whereas when you see an academy, they have full of equipment, modern facilities are available there. This also affects the quality of education within our society. So how you see the academy, the modern privatization of schools? Okay, thank you. Sandra, do you have to lead off on Okay, well, in the chapter in schools, the sort of question that's been asked here is what's the impact of overall expenditure or the um, class-pupil ratio, the pupil-teacher ratio, um, as a sort of overall measures of resources. And what's that's trying to inform the debate about does incremental differences in overall expenditure really matter? Does it matter to sort of protect the budget in schools or not? And, and the answer to that is yes, it does. Um, it, it does. It does matter, and um, perhaps there's some debate about to the extent that that matters. Um, I would, my personal view is that the best studies suggest that the difference is quite significant uh, for resources. Um, now, a different question is what are the ways that money can be used, what are specific interventions, how effective are they? That's not really addressed there. That's, I think, addressed to some extent through the book um, in different chapters. And many, many interventions that we haven't looked at in the book because we haven't tried to cover everything. Um, and that's a much bigger question. Given that most things cost money, where do you invest best? And we all think that there are some interventions that are really good and are shown to be really good and other interventions that aren't. And what ideally you'd want in an ideal world is a sort of cost-benefit analysis of all the possible interventions that you would have. But, you know, everything, everything costs money. All of the, most of the interventions cost money to some extent. Um, and, I mean, we are focusing very narrowly on test achievement even though um, of course schools are not just there to produce people who can do well in tests and do well in the labour market, they are there for a whole other range of other reasons and we don't really um, look at that as outcomes uh, as economists very easily because it's very, they're very hard to measure those things mainly that's the reason because those things are hard to measure, not because they aren't important so, yeah, just very briefly in, in terms of the question about did we consult children? Uh, no, but we did consider where there was sort of evidence on, uh, robust evidence on the impact on well-being, child well-being. That was included in the book. We were, despite the last interchange, trying to avoid uh, using evidence for, selectively in the sense of, you know, picking out one school, picking out one example, and we'd, we're trying to put into the book... Um, robust statistical evidence and by its very nature that's not about consulting children it doesn't mean that consulting children is not important and it's certainly important if you're trying to run a school and design a school system but it's not the purpose of the book I don't think and I think um, yeah that's all I want to say Uh, yes, indeed. And, I mean, uh, the book should inform what we know from the evidence that we might want to do differently or might want to spend differently. Uh, whether or not you want to change your policy in response to what children think is another in- different question entirely. Well, I'm going to draw it to a close there. I mean, lots of interesting uh, and good questions. But let's thank the audience, uh, thank the speakers from the audience. <laughs>